0: Well, we're at the start of a new year, and it's been our practice at City Life at the start of the year to just kind of reframe ourselves, to recenter ourselves um, around some first things, what's most important. So uh, beginning next week, we're going to dive back into uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and for much of 2024, we're going to be journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning, we're actually in Luke's Gospel, and we're looking at This story of these two sisters. And the way that Luke tells his Jesus story, his gospel, by chapter 10, we're now on the road headed to Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, it tells us that when the days were coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And so from this point forward in Luke's narrative, Jesus's face is set toward Jerusalem. He is trekking toward the cross. We're on a road that's headed toward Calvary. Notice in verse 38 that this is a travel narrative. That it's it's while they were traveling that this takes place. We are on the road with Jesus. And as we travel with Jesus toward Jerusalem, He's going to teach us. And this is really the essence of discipleship, isn't it? That we journey with Jesus, that we learn with him and from him along the way. We we let him teach us what it means to be his disciples as we go with him toward the cross. Learning what it is to have our lives shaped by his life, by his teachings, and ultimately by his death, burial, and resurrection. One commentator explains that this passage is composed by Luke as a part of a section in his gospel that deals specifically with the disciples' primary responsibilities before God. In other words, words, Luke has arranged his his gospel material to help us focus here on what Jesus teaches about the core commitments of his followers— so, the verses that directly precede the ones we're in this morning are the story of the Good Samaritan. In that passage, a lawyer engages Jesus about the essence of faith. And he asks Jesus what the most important commandment is, what it, what it is to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart in soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you recall, the lawyer asks a follow-up question to Jesus. He wants a he wants a clarification. And Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus instead of giving him an answer, he tells him a story. It's the story that we know as the good Samaritan, and through this story, we discover what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. We learn that a key aspect of following Jesus is, is to care for those in need that we encounter along the path, so to speak, no matter who they are. We're called to love and to serve others unconditionally, sacrificially. And ultimately, we can't read this story and not think of the one telling it, right? Jesus is the one who loved us that way when we were left for dead. In fact, he he was beaten up. He was chastised for us so that we could be healed by his wounds. In other words, what what Jesus is ultimately teaching us in that story is that you can't be a good Samaritan without first seeing yourself as the one left for dead on the side of the road, without first experiencing his mercy and his love. But, But that's another sermon for another day. In our passage this morning, Luke directs our attention to the first part of Jesus' answer about the essence of faith. Namely, what it means to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what Luke aims to show us in this brief episode is that as disciples who are called to love our neighbors, we must not let serving in the name of Jesus Eclipse, spending time with Jesus. Stephen Cole says, if we only had the story of the Good Samaritan, we might allow service for God to take precedence over devotion to God. But the story of Mary and Martha shows us that devotion to God must be the basis of all of our service for him. That worship must undergird our work. So let me put it simply. Serving Christ is no replacement for sitting at his feet. And so let's unpack this story and see it in three parts. We'll see, first, Mary's audacity, and then secondly, Martha's anxiousness, and then finally, Jesus' admonition. So Jesus and his disciples, as they journey toward Jerusalem, they enter the village of Bethany. And when they come to town, a woman named Martha welcomes Jesus and his crew into her home. This is very likely the same Martha who was a sister of Lazarus, Jesus' friend that he would later raise from the grave. Martha's name literally means mistress, which likely implies that she was the head of this house. This is her home. And and, and we don't know exactly how many of Jesus' disciples were with him, certainly the 12. But there's quite possibly many of the 72 that, that were mentioned earlier in chapter 10. And so I want you to imagine Martha opening her home to this entourage of people as they come into the village of Bethany. We also need to understand something of the importance of hospitality in the first century. According to historians, hospitality customs were a vital part of the culture of the ancient world. The people followed these customs as formal, even sacred codes of conduct. We, we catch a glimpse of this in the Old Testament. God called for Israel to be hospitable to sojourners and travelers who came in among them. Or think about Jesus when he sent out uh, his disciples to go perform itinerant ministry in his name. He presumed upon them having hospitality being provided for them as they went into various towns. This was a common practice. And so as Jesus enters Bethany, it's Martha who steps up and volunteers her home for Jesus and his friends. And according to custom, the host was... Obliged to provide the traveler with food, water, and shelter. And so as Jesus is welcomed in, Martha quickly gets to work preparing a meal for Jesus and all of his disciples. Martha is busy trying to fulfill the expected responsibilities upon her. She's trying to be a good host. And so you can see it, can't you? You see Martha scurrying around the kitchen, working to prepare drinks, beginning to cook this meal for this large group of people, trying to figure out who's going to wash her her guest's feet, frantically picking up and dusting off and making sure things are in order. Can you see the busyness of Martha? Meanwhile, and this is where the story gets interesting, Mary, her younger sister, is doing something quite unexpected. Something we might even call scandalous. Because not only is Mary not in the kitchen with her sister, helping prepare the meal or, or fetching water for the guests, no, no, no. Mary is in the living room, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. Now, to fully appreciate this phrase, we need to understand something of this language of sitting at the feet. It's an image that that conveys a notion of discipleship. In Jewish culture, disciples would sit at the feet of their rabbi to learn from him. It was a way to convey submission to his teaching. It was was an image of, of tutelage. Consider the language used as Matthew sets the scene at the Sermon on the Mount. It says that Jesus ascended a mountain and then he sits down in a rabbinical posture, a teaching posture and it says his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. They sit at his feet and he teaches them. Or Think about in Luke chapter 8 when it tells us that Jesus casts out a demon from a possessed man and it says that when the people came and found him, they found him in his right mind sitting at Jesus' feet. This sitting at feet is a picture of learning from a teacher. And here in our story is Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. I'm afraid the scandal of this is is lost on us. But if if someone in the ancient Near East were reading Luke's gospel, it would likely jump off the page at them. They would find it shocking. In, In the first century, it was unheard of. For a woman to be a disciple of a rabbi. Most rabbis back then viewed teaching women as a waste of time. In the setting of the the first century, this is quite strange what is happening. And yet, here Mary is, welcomed by Jesus as he teaches. She's defying what was expected of her and taking advantage of this opportunity. See, Mary understood something about the uniqueness of who was in her home that night. He wasn't just any old guest. In a normal situation, the thing for her to do would have been to help her sister. But this wasn't a normal situation. And she wasn't going to miss out much to Martha's chagrin. And so, again, imagine the scene with me. Martha, she's rushing around. She's fulfilling the cultural obligations of her day. Mary sits in wonder, looking into her maker, her Messiah's eyes as he teaches. And you can feel the tension beginning to build between Martha and Mary. Maybe you can imagine the disciples also listening to Jesus, perhaps a bit puzzled and distracted that among them sits a woman. Maybe there were other women also in the room learning from Jesus that evening. If you read the Gospels long enough, one thing you'll you'll begin to notice is that Jesus frequently interrupts the cultural customs and norms of his day. As one commentator frankly put it, Jesus' ministry breaks molds. In the kingdom of Christ, he tells us that the poor are blessed. That the meek are the ones who inherit the earth. That the underprivileged and the unlearned, the known sinners, enter the kingdom before the self-righteous elites. Jesus did a lot of boundary expansion in his ministry. When he called the 12 disciples, notice who he didn't call. He didn't call the religious leaders. He called some fishermen, a zealot, and even a tax collector. During his ministry, Jesus welcomed in demoniacs, he welcomed in Samaritans, thieves like Zacchaeus, even prostitutes. And although his ministry primarily took place in the the land of Israel, among Jewish people, he later told his disciples before he departed, hey, I want you to now take this message and I want you to take my mission to Pontata Ethne, all people groups from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And here in this moment, in Luke chapter 10, the Lord welcomes in a woman to sit at his feet as a learner of the way. The story is revealing to us that the privilege of discipleship is not for an elite few. It's not only for those with a certain social class or socioeconomic standing or ethnicity. It's for all peoples. The Apostle Paul would later make this explicitly clear in Galatians 3.28 when he says that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek Slave or free, male or female, that you are all one in Christ. That the privilege of discipleship is for all who will come and sit at his feet. Church, what might this teach us about how our church ought to look? Is there room at City Life for the kinds of people that Jesus welcomed in? I think it's a question we ought to ruminate on. Are we saying to people, there's room for you to come and sit at Jesus' feet and learn with us? Is that what our city groups say? Is that what our dining room tables say? This verb in verse 39, where it says that Mary sat, is a reflexive verb. And what that means is, is that it's an action that Mary performed upon herself. It implies that Mary sat herself beside Jesus. There's some initiative here by Mary. She took the initiative to sit at Jesus' feet. And so I want you to listen to me, wherever you are, whoever you are this morning. Jesus is ready to teach you. The opportunity to become his apprentice is offered to you. He's inviting you into relationship. But like Mary, you, you need to have the audacity to seat yourself at his feet, to defy business as usual, to refuse to let anything else be more important than him, to shirk off anything that would stand in the way of humbling yourself before him as his follower. This invitation Is astonishing, isn't it? That the Lord of the universe, the word who was in the beginning with God, through whom all things were made, would allow you and me to know him. I wonder if we've taken the privilege of discipleship for granted lately. When was the last time you sat in the stillness of a morning and considered the privilege of being known and loved by God? That you can draw near to him in confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Do you take it for granted? I wonder when you came to worship this morning if if you viewed it as a privilege to get to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ and to sing to the living God. I mean, it's a presumptuous thing, isn't it, to think that God would be here with us, and yet he is, that he meets us in this moment and kisses us with his presence and condescends from his throne on high to bestow his grace upon us, and he even will teach us from his word by his Spirit. Is that how you came in? Or maybe it felt a little bit more like a chore. Here's what is often true in my own life. And what I think might be true in yours as well. This, this privilege of discipleship, this blessing of intimate fellowship with Jesus is often forfeited because I'm preoccupied with other things. That's where we find Martha in this story. Luke tells us in verse 39 that while Mary sat at Jesus' feet, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Martha's preoccupation with hosting kept her from hearing the words of Jesus. Her dutiful distractions kept her from intimate devotion. Now, lest we pile on Martha, author John Bloom invites us to put ourselves in her place for a moment. He says, how distracted would you be if a hundred people crowded into your home? Some of us just went through Christmas with family. We know this all too well. You add to that the high cultural value of Near Eastern hospitality with its keen fear of dishonoring guests, especially important ones. And then remember that it's Jesus in your home. He's the Messiah, the most important person in your nation's history, and in fact, human history. Would you be distracted by how your place looked or how you would feed this crowd or how many trips must be made to the well? And the answer for all of us is yes. And that is honestly what makes this text so hard for us, right? Because we can relate to Martha, can't we? We are Martha. I find myself wanting to defend Martha. I feel her frustrations. If Mary were my sister, I would have accidentally tripped over her a few times as I passed by. You know, like, come on. And we read this story, and and, and to some of us, Let's be honest, Martha comes across a little lazy and a little selfish. Letting her sister slave away while she just sits there. Come on, Mary. I mean, it's not even as if Martha was preoccupied with sinful things. You could argue that she was concerned with a very good thing. She's trying to host This meal and serve her guests. She's trying to fulfill what was expected of her. She's doing what was deemed normal and proper. Don't miss that. She was doing what was normal and expected of her. And that's why Jesus' words are so penetrating and why this story is so challenging because it confronts our paradigm for discipleship and it forces us to evaluate our lives in light of what Jesus says is most important. While Martha was caught up in very important tasks, it led her to neglect the most important thing. Pastor Ligon Duncan warns us, If ever there was a culture in which we are susceptible to that very temptation, it is ours. We live in the busiest culture in the history of the world. We are constantly surrounded by and bombarded by busyness. We're busy all the time. There's stuff going on all the time. There are phones going off and iPads going off. And that busyness is an enemy to discipleship because it keeps our eyes focused on a multitude of less important things. A multitude of less important things. I don't know about you, but I find that to be true in my life. Things like writing sermons and having people over for dinner and helping with school projects and meeting with prospective members and coaching middle school basketball and planning church events and going to ministry conferences, all perfectly normal, good, justifiable, expected of me things. More superficially, I'm occupied with unimportant things like social media and watching Mississippi State lose another basketball game. And combined, my life is filled with a lot of things. And truthfully, if I can just be really honest with you, because maybe you'll relate with me, I'm tempted to make my busyness into a source of righteousness. We tend to think, don't we, that being busy makes us godly why we work so hard to let everyone know how busy we are reminds me of this old rice krispie treats commercial maybe you'll remember there's this woman in a kitchen making rice krispie treats and rice krispie treats are really easy to make if you didn't know you melt some butter and some marshmallows and you mix it with rice krispies and there you go but she doesn't want her husband to think it's that easy and he's clueless So right before he walks in the kitchen, she grabs some flour and throws it on her face to make it look like she's been working really hard in the kitchen. And we can do that with our lives, can't we? We deeply value appearing busy. Hey, brother, how you been? Oh, you know, man, just real busy. Life's just crazy. It's just busy. Yeah, I hear you, bro. Not enough time, too much to do. I think others of us more specifically deeply value being known for our activism. We project and we perform our lives forward to make sure that we are seen doing certain things. And we can be tempted to think that our busyness, especially with certain activities, makes us good disciples of Jesus. We're like Martha. Verse 41 says that Martha was worried and upset about many things. That that phrase, worried and upset, conveys this idea of anxious toil. Martha was anxiously toiling. She was stressed out. And at the root of her stress and anxiety was a performance righteousness. Righteousness. A concern with how others perceived her. It it seems that Martha wanted her hospitality to be impressive. For her home to be warm and welcoming. She, She was maybe more concerned with personal appearances than actually being with Jesus. John Blooms describes her anxiety as the subtle desire for approval dressed up to look like the desire to serve. I wonder in all of our busyness how much of it is the desire for approval dressed up to appear like the desire to serve. Sometimes this is revealed in an inability to say no. Do you struggle to say no? Do you ever run into trouble because you can't say no? If you struggle to say no, it might be because you're you're aching for approval. Martha wanted to be approved of. She wanted to be well thought of. And so she busied herself with serving, and yet her serving was at least in part self-serving. You see that? Bloom goes on, he says, It can be so subtle that we don't even see it clearly. It looks so much like the right thing that we believe it is the right thing. That's why Martha was confident that Jesus would agree with her about Mary. And yet, to her surprise, he doesn't. When Martha finally got up the courage to to appeal to Jesus, to tell Mary to get off her rear end and to go help her, Jesus doesn't do it. He lovingly corrects Martha. And, and, And by the way, just a side note here, it is a telltale sign that our hearts are disordered if we have lost certainty that Jesus cares about us. Notice Martha's language here. Lord, don't you care? God, don't you care about me? Can't you see what's going on here? And then notice what happens next. There's this uncertainty of, of the Lord's love and then there's this comparative righteousness that immediately takes place. My sister has left me to serve alone. Martha falls prey to comparative righteousness. She's she's basing her acceptance upon her performance. She's saying, in essence, you should love me more because look at all I've done compared to my sister. When you find yourself praying, Lord, do you care? Instead of living in the assurance of his love. Or maybe praying, Lord, do you see so-and-so? Instead of, Lord, search my heart and know me. You've gone the way of Martha. Martha was trapped in this performance righteousness. She felt self-righteous toward her sister and uncertain toward her Lord. She was like that older brother in in the story of the prodigal son who pridefully said to the father, all these years I've been slaving for you. Can't you see I'm working hard, God? Don't you love me for my efforts? And Jesus lovingly says to Martha, you don't have to prove yourself to have my love. Just come sit at my feet. What Jesus says in response to all of our busyness, all of our busyness with serving, with activism, even with ministry, is that none of those things are the highest priority of being his disciples. If our activity with good things preoccupies us from the most important thing, which is a relationship with Him, Jesus says our lives are disordered. Church, listen to me. Activity in the vicinity of Jesus cannot replace intimacy at the feet of Jesus. This is what makes Christianity unique among all religions. There are plenty of religions that teach good works. There are plenty of religions that drive you to activism, but all of them only lead to anxious toil, doing, doing, doing to prove yourself to the divine. Or in Eastern religions, emptying, emptying, emptying to find the divine. But only in Christianity, only Christianity emphasizes a relationship with the divine. God saying to us, come be with me. Martha's life was filled with anxious activity, but it was absent of the warmth of nearness to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I want you to come be with me, Martha. I love how Mark depicts this in his gospel. In Mark chapter 3, it says that when it came time for Jesus to select the 12 disciples, that he went up on a mountain and he, he chose those whom he desired, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He didn't just choose them to send them. We're not tools to God. He wants us to be with him. He loves us. And so Jesus lovingly invites Martha to choose the better portion. He says, Martha, Martha, you can insert your name right there. Andy. Andy, you are worried and upset about lots of things. But only one thing is necessary. Mary's made the right choice. And I'm not going to take it away from her. One thing is necessary. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life, to know and follow hard after you. This passage teaches us that while there are many things we could be doing, there's only one thing we must do. And that's to spend unhurried time with our Lord, to learn from Him. If I neglect sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving from His heart, that I've neglected the one thing that is necessary. In essence, Jesus is saying to Martha, and He's saying to us, Be still and know that I am God. Quit trying to prove yourself and come sit at my feet. There's gonna be time to eat, Martha. There's gonna be opportunities to serve, but you're not defined by those things, you're not defined by others' perceptions of your service, or by how busy you are. You're defined by knowing and loving me. Would you come sit with me? Would you come learn from me? Would you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden? And I'm going to give you a real rest. And that's the difference. When we follow Mary's lead, and we seat ourselves at the feet of Christ, we find rest for our souls. Time with Jesus brings us peace and rest. Do you want that for your soul? Make the choice to spend time with Jesus, to hear his words, to learn from him. Let me reframe this one other way and we're done. Jesus is essentially saying to Martha, Martha, I am the meal. You're you're trifling trying to provide this meal But Martha, I am the meal. By opening up your home and letting me come in and and, and teach, you've already served the meal that can truly satisfy. And and more important than preparing food is is sitting with me. I'm the bread of life. In fact, commentators would say that that, that Deuteronomy 8.3 is likely being echoed in this story. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We don't just need physical food for life. We need food for our souls. We need the bread that comes from heaven. This passage redefines for us, by the way, what it means to be hospitable. Being hospitable is is opening up your life and opening up your home to others so that they can have a real encounter with Jesus. You don't have to pull out the fine china for that. Now, you may want to at times. That's great. But you can serve Jesus on a paper plate. Simply opening up your door to outsiders and saying, Hey, I want you to come and experience the real Jesus. And so, friends, as we close, the invitation to this text is simple. At the start of a new year, what would it look like for you to rearrange your life so that the one thing that is necessary is prioritized? How are you going to make space to spend time with Jesus every day in the Word and in prayer? What might you need to say no to so that you can say yes to communing with Christ? Let me narrow in a little bit. Husbands and wives, how are you going to work together to help each other prioritize the one thing that is necessary? Friends, how are you going to help each other make Jesus the starting point? These are great questions for a city group, by the way. We should regularly be asking one another Are you slowing down for loving union with Jesus? Are you spending time at Jesus' feet? Are you getting into his word? How's your prayer life? The God of creation, your Savior, is inviting you to commune with him, to hear him speak to learn from him, to be with him. What a privilege. May we choose the better portion. Amen. Let's pray together.